Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) I mean, I I, I had to put my pants back on. Did you? It's a hot, muggy night on the lake. And it's humid, and so I decided I, I thought I would do the show pantsless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I, I tried to sit down on this wicker chair. It's a terrible mistake. Yeah, that was uncomfortable and awkward. I do want to point out, though, that uh, underwear doesn't count as pants. Well, they're underpants. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. They're a member of the pants family. All right, you're fine, you're fine. Hey, thanks uh, to Sam Porter. <gasps> what? Hold on, let oh. me go get it. Sam Porter, who has been a faithful uh, Box of Oddities freak now from the very beginning, sent us a, a package. It's the Funk and Wagnalls Standard Dictionary of Folklore, Mythology, and Legend. It's two volumes, and it's so beautiful. And it's like a 1940s edition. It's so cool. That's amazing. Because you had just casually mentioned that as one of your sources that you had researched a topic on. Right. And you just said, and I need that, by the way. And Sam found it online and, and sent it. That's amazing. Okay. Also, I love you, Sam. Okay, the IPA is open, so your turn. You go first. Oh, I go first. Okay, what a delightful turn of events that probably I should have expected. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to take you back to 1820. Martin Fugate was a French orphan who emigrated to Kentucky to claim a land grant on the wilderness banks of Troublesome Creek. I like the way this is starting. You do? Oh, yes. Okay, because of land claims and... No, just the way you're telling the story. Oh, okay. Yeah, you've drawn me in already. Martin met and married a woman named Elizabeth Smith, who was said to be as white as the mountain laurel that blooms every spring around the creek hollows. Martin and Elizabeth settled on the banks of the Troublesome and began a family. They had seven children. Four of them were blue. Oh, 
Yes, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, the 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 blue people from Kentucky. It's the blue people from Kentucky. All right. Now, I know of this, but I know none of the details. Okay. And I, actually, I remember, didn't somebody send us something about that recently? Somebody did not long ago. Okay. Amy sent the suggestion on uh, Instagram, and I was actually, weirdly enough, and maybe it was because of the Picks and their blue faces and yeah. that conversation. Maybe that's why it was on both of our minds, but I was already researching it. Uh, and so when she sent the message, I was like, squee! <laughs> okay. So, uh, yay. So the odds of this match were pretty incalculable, as Michael Scott would say. <laughs> uh, but Martin managed to find and marry a woman who carried the same recessive gene called methemoglobinemia. Methemoglobin... Bin... Methemo... It's methemoglobinemia. Okay. We're going to call it MET-H. Okay. So MET-H... MET-H is a condition caused by elevated levels of methemoglobin in the blood. It's a form of hemoglobin, um, which I do know how to say. Yes. Now, was he blue or just carried the gene? We don't know. Oh. There are no records that speak of his skin tone, which would make you think that he was not blue. But it's likely that he was. Wow. Because if he wasn't and his wife wasn't and they were just carrying this uh, gene, that would have been weird. Yeah. Well, either way. Four of the kids turned out uh, very, very blue. So they're simply known as the blue people of the hills uh, around Troublesome and Ball Creeks. Most lived to their 80s and 90s without serious illness associated with the skin discoloration. They were so, just they were just blue. They were just blue. Uh, the family, though, they they did have some struggles with it. They were embarrassed and uh, they were discriminated against because their skin was blue. Uh, their community didn't not didn't treat them well uh, because of their skin color. And this caused them to seek more isolation, which is really ironic. And um, it exacerbated the problem because in most cases, Methemoglobinemia is, in almost all cases, a product of inbreeding. Really? Mm. Okay. Because the recessive gene is so rare, it's even more rare to encounter someone else who has it unless they're related. So in this time, in rural eastern Kentucky, there weren't real roads There wasn't a railroad going through that part of the state until the early 1910s. It was a small settlement, uh, no uh, way to connect to nearby towns. And that meant that the local youngins had very limited supplies of potential partners. And that led to a lot of intermarrying. Uh, Fugate and Smith's son, Zachariah, for example, ended up marrying his aunt. Okay, these were isolated hill folk. Yes. Okay. The the Appalachia. And it really became more of a problem because they were kind of not accepted by the community. So they stayed to their own and it, it fed on itself. Now, at this time, they didn't know that this was a hemoglobin issue. I mean, they weren't, you know, out there testing no, their bloods no. and such in, you know. Uh, I would venture to guess that they never said the word hemoglobin. It's probably in true. The, in the hills of Kentucky. Yeah. 
Um, but there was a lot of speculation about what had caused this situation. And it included things like heart disease or lung disorders that would have kept the blood from getting enough oxygen. There was a possibility proposed by one old timer in the region that, quote, their blood is just a little closer to their skin. Okay, like the whole blue blood thing. If we're talking about it like aristocrats. Yeah. And not that show with Tom Selleck. Was the family Caucasian? Yes. I'm wondering during that particular time in American history, mm-hmm. and you said that they were discriminated against. I'm wondering how people in those times categorized this family because things were literally black and white right. in those days. Yeah. Um, probably they were just looked at as like freaks. You know, that obviously they didn't know what caused this, but they did know that they were a very isolated group of people. They probably knew that they didn't venture much outside of their family. Did they have the same rights as Caucasians did at the time? They did. I mean, there wasn't a a huge enough population to create laws that would have been like, don't use our drinking fountains. Right, right, right. But I imagine that it would have been like, no, I'm not going to sell you my donkeys or the shopkeep wouldn't have given them a tab at the store. I, I, I don't know of specific instances, but I imagine that being the kind of thing, just, just a general bullying of sorts. But uh, the doctors in Kentucky didn't make their way to the mountains very often, and uh, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because they wouldn't have understood what was going on. So there was a guy named Madison Cowan, and he began hearing rumors about the blue people when he went to work at the University of Kentucky's Lexington Medical Clinic in 1960. He would drive back and forth between Lexington and Hazard, which is, I guess, about an eight-hour drive, uh, looking for the blue people that he'd heard about. The American Heart Association had a clinic in Hazard, and it was there that he met a nurse who had offered to help him in this research, and her name was Ruth Pendergrass, and she'd been trying to get interest spurred in the blue people ever since a very dark blue woman came into her clinic uh, on a very cold afternoon and asked for a blood test. So there were different shades of blue within Mm -hmm. the family? No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Um, And apparently to some great degree. No kidding. Pendergrass recalled, quote, she had been out in the cold and she was just blue. Her face and fingernails were in deep indigo. It scared me to death. It looked like she was having a heart attack. I just knew that this patient was going to die there in the health department, but she wasn't tall alarmed. She wasn't tall alarmed. She told me that her family was the Blue Combses who lived up on Ball Creek. Uh, She was a sister to one of the Fugate women. About this same time, another of the Blue Combs named Luke had, uh, had become sick. Luke Combs? Yes. Really? Yeah. I don't think it's the same one because this was in the 60s. Dang it. But Luke was... <laughs> what did I say? Oh, yes. Okay. So he had taken his sick wife up to a clinic in Lexington. And Pendergrass said that one look at Luke was enough to get those doctors down here in a hurry. So... Ruth Pendergrass said that every once in a while she'd see a blue person like up on a hill or something and she'd just take off trying to catch them and they would run away from her. (laughs) What do you expect? (laughs) 
<laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I would run away too. <laughs> if I lived in the hills and I ventured down and immediately I was chased by city folk. But eventually... Uh, there were a few of the the blue people who uh, came in, and Cowan describes them uh, in this way. They were bluer than hell. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, I had to examine them. After concluding that there was no evidence of heart disease, I said, aha, and I started asking them questions. Do you have any relatives that are blue? And then I sat down and we began to chart the family. Okay, so once Cowan had determined that this was an enzyme deficiency, he thought of a an antidote, a, and he said that it was perfectly obvious, and it was methylene blue. Now, some of the blue people were quite skeptical and did not want to take this blue dye sure. to cure them from being blue. Right. That seemed counterintuitive. Here you're on fire. Let me give you some fire. I'll just put this here with, with the, the rest, rest of, of the fire. fire. But Cowan knew from earlier studies that the body had an alternative method of converting methemoglobin back into like normal functioning. Non-blue. Non-blue bits. Okay. Uh, he chose this substance, methylene blue, because it had been used successfully and safely in other uh, types of disorders, and it worked quickly. So he brought his black bag and rounded up Nurse Pendergrass, um, who he described as a big old nurse. <laughs> and I just don't understand how that's relevant in any way. You know, it's the storytelling of that's the time, the I guess. It is, I guess. So they went over to uh, Patrick and Rachel Ritchie's house, and they were the two uh, that had originally come into their clinic, and uh, they injected each of them with 100 milligrams of methylene blue. Within a few minutes, the blue color was gone from their skin. Shut up! The doctor said for the first time in their lives, they looked pink, and they were delighted. Wow. Yeah. So how long did the effect last? Did they have to keep going back in for blue dye injections? What he did was uh, handed out capsules oh. that the blue people would take every day. Um, and it maintained their their normal, uh, let's, let's say normal skin color. The methylene blue is excreted through your urine. And if you were to stop taking it, you'd become blue again. But if you take it every day, you're just going to be a regular old skin person. Wait, do you pee blue? Um, that seems to be the case. God, that's so awesome. One of the old timers reported as saying that uh, he could see the blue leaving his body. I, but I he thought it was his blue. Oh, I want to pee blue. Just for a while. There's a medication that I take every once in a while if I get a urinary tract infection that makes me pee orange. And that is really... Well, that's alarming. Concerning. Yeah. Blue is more festive. Blue is more festive. Yeah. Um, you can poop gold. That's true, too. They've got those gold capsules. From the holidays, take a couple of those and some blue capsules and uh, go outside and decorate your yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yard decorations. Mm. Mm. Anyway, uh, so most of them were absolutely thrilled with this. The doctor was thrilled that he'd been able to treat them successfully. And uh, over the years, as the uh, family expanded, because they were able to get out of their very 
tight knit community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, roads were built, the railroad came through, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, they started to spread out, and you're not seeing the blue people really uh, anymore. However, 20 years ago, there was a boy born in Lexington, I think, and he was completely blue. And the doctors and nurses at the hospital were very concerned because his parents weren't blue. Mm. And eventually, one of the the nurses was talking to the mom and the mom was like, well, haven't you guys ever heard of the blue people of Kentucky? And the nurse was like, no, what? (laughs) And And then uh, they all burst into a round of the Eiffel 65 hit. (laughs) But she like her great grandmother was uh, one of the original blue fugates. um, And she was described as one of the super blues. I don't think they called them super blues, but she was a very blue woman. Wow. wow. Um, Very, very blue. So uh, the bluest they've seen. So apparently that gene made its way to this kid who uh, is being treated for his blue skin and you wouldn't know any better that he was blue. He just has to maintain that That's blue right. dye intake. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And it's mostly due, you said, to limited um, procreational options, shall we say. Yeah, their family tree was more like a manhole cover. <laughs> it's the part of the podcast that's been told it looks like child star Mason Reese and takes it as a compliment. This is That Thing in the Middle. I love you for finding this list. <laughs> I'm the happiest I've ever been. Here are some of the stranger roadside attractions in the great United States of America. I you weirdos (laughs) number five the jimmy carter peanut statue it's been described as a mildly unnerving 13 foot toothy nut number four i'm bringing it to maine you can visit lenny the chocolate moose in scarborough see the 1700 pounds of stale 18 year old chocolate (laughs) shaped like a moose named lenny number three the world's most scenic urinal At Hawaii's Hotel Kona, making a pit stop here is the main attraction. And it's lovely, I have to say. Number two. In North Carolina, you can see the world's largest chest of drawers. (laughs) Oh, you didn't know that High Point was the home furnishings capital of the world? Well, this 38-foot dresser is here to remind you. And number one. In Louisiana, Nicolas Cage's Tombs. Uh, yep, some say that uh, one thing that's weirder than the fact that Nicolas Cage is still making movies is the fact that his burial plot's already picked out. It's a 10-foot-tall, national treasure-esque pyramid inscribed with the phrase, Everything from One. That's... That's for Nick. But he did he buy that? Yes. Oh. And apparently that's a piece of property he still owns. <sighs> you snarky bitch. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Sometimes these liners just aren't very creative. Like that one just now. This is the Box of Oddities. Hey, we got a message from Dustin who said, Did you guys know that uh, there is a Box of Oddities subreddit, uh, subreddit on, on Reddit? I didn't know that. Did you know that? Um, I feel like someone had mentioned it a while ago, but it hadn't really gathered any traction at that point. Yeah. So I checked it, it was out. This is the very early days. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Whoa, early. Yeah, I che I checked it out, and and yeah, it was started like almost a year ago. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that he asked is that we would mention that, so maybe more people would join in. So there you go. There's a box of oddity subreddit for you if you uh, you want to check that out. Um, okay. In 2003, there was a um a local explorer in Chile. Oh, I want to go to Chile. Me too. We'll go one day. And this guy, I, I don't want to categorize him as a uh, amateur archaeologist because that has a lot of connotations associated with it. He was just a guy who liked to explore um, indigenous ruins. Okay. I don't see what the problem is with being an amateur archaeologist anyway. 
Like, well, I, I think that they've been responsible for um, ruining a lot of uh, dig sites and digging things up inappropriately and losing information and data. And all right, so that's a not good amateur archaeologist. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Like, I'm sure that an amateur chef here and there has poisoned someone, but that doesn't mean that all amateur chefs are going to give you E. coli. That is a point well taken. Thank you. In 2003, in the Atacama Desert of northern Chile, an amateur collector was exploring an abandoned village, and he came across a white cloth inside a leather pouch found in the ruins of one of the dwellings. He opened it up, obviously, and inside was a most curious object. Are you going to tell us? No, that's the end of the story. Okay. It was a strange human-like cadaver. It was only about six to eight inches in length. It had hardened teeth. Mm. It had ten ribs Instead of 12, it had giant eye sockets, an elongated pointy skull. It had all kinds of humanoid type features, but it didn't really look human. Oh, no. Now, we're going to have to post this picture because there is no way for me to accurately describe it without showing it to you. Aha. So does that look like it's real to you? It looks like a little alien. Real real meaning what? I think that's a tough question. Not a hoax. Like someone didn't plant that in a created, sheet in yeah. a leather it pouch. Was, and yeah, it wasn't created in the Jim Henson workshop. And then, yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that could. Yeah. That looks very realistic. Well, since the discovery, the tiny form has, uh, has created all kinds of curiosity, of course. And again, this was 2003. And there have been a few people who speculate that these are the remains of an alien life form. It was preserved by the dry desert conditions, and they named it Atta because of the area. Okay. It was, it was found in ATA. It's undeniably weird, and it's, like I said, only six to eight inches, and the explorer took it with him and kept it. And then ultimately, in 2012, it was purchased by... A Spanish businessman. All right. Well, that's where the amateur archaeologist in him yeah, failed. Right. That's not... You've been poisoned by E. coli. <sighs> the Spanish businessman Ramon Navia Osorio purchased uh, the mummy in 2012. And then he uh, allowed a doctor named Stephen Greer to use x-rays and uh, different types of computerized imaging to analyze this skeleton. Mm-hmm. Now, my first thought is that this is a deformed fetus that the people didn't understand or know what to do with, so they, they wrapped it up, and, and is that... That's certainly something that um, a lot of people thought, but the question was, if, if this was an embryo, mm-hmm. the size of it would have precluded the advancement of the bone structure. Okay. The bone structure indicated that... If this had been human, it would have been more like six to eight years old because of the way that it had been developed. But Mm -hmm. it was only six to eight inches. It had that long, pointy skull, and it was different ribs. And it was just, it was hard to say that that was actually the case. So he gives it to this doctor, Stephen Greer. Stephen Greer does all these uh, imaging, computer imaging and and X-ray 
analysis of the skeleton. He's convinced it's an alien, but he is also the founder of the Disclosure Project, which is, quote, working to fully disclose the facts about UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh-huh. And also classified energy and propulsion systems, according to... Uh, the website. So he might be a little biased. He, he's probably not the most impartial person to give these remains to. Mm-hmm. In 2013, a documentary was being filmed about it. It was called Sirius. It was based on uh, Stephen Greer's book that he wrote about this incident called Forbidden Knowledge. The uh, film was fairly successful. Uh, it was funded by a Kickstarter campaign. It follows uh, Greer's efforts to reveal what he claims is information about top-secret energy projects and propulsion techniques, and that uh, this particular artifact that they found was, in fact, proof that this was an alien that had died sometime in the distant past in what is now Chile. That's a... uh That brings up a great question, um, if I do say so myself. Um, When do they think that this was put in the fanny pack? In the fanny pack. Do aliens wear fanny packs? I think they must. They're constantly traveling. It's the easiest way to carry around your small things. At this point, they thought that it looked like, based on the way that it had been preserved, it could be thousands of years old. What? Well, this is what they thought at this point, before any additional testing had taken Mm -hmm. place. So while this documentary was being filmed, a guy named Gary Nolan, he's an immunologist at Stanford University, heard about the filming of this and heard about the remains that had been found. And uh, he contacted the producers of the documentary, which is called Sirius, while it was still in production. They were still making it. And he said, you know what? This is fascinating. I have access to all sorts of uh, DNA testing equipment here at Stanford University. Why don't you, as part of your documentary, let me do some DNA tests and we'll figure out once and for all what this is. He sounds like a reasonable dude. I like it. So the skeleton's owner, the businessman from Spain, agreed to x-ray images as well as bone marrow samples taken from the ribs and the right humerus. A geneticist at the University of Santiago de Compostela in Spain, he was not uh, involved in the study, said it's a very beautiful example of how genomics can help to disentangle an anthropological or archaeological dilemma. Mm -hmm. They did not know, obviously, what this was. Yeah, it's like what forensics is to police work. Yeah, he went on to call it DNA autopsies. I love that term. He said they could help shed light on medical disorders by looking to the past to understand the present. So he was clearly thinking that this was some sort of a human that was suffering from some sort of genetic deformity. Once Dr. Nolan and his colleagues got the samples, they were able to retrieve fragments of DNA from the bone marrow cells without any struggle at all. No issue at all. A computational biologist at the University of California, San Francisco, and co-author of the study, Atul Bute, said, We did think it was a a human at first, but we had no idea what we were going to ultimately find out. The scientists eventually were able to reconstruct almost the entire genome of Atta. And here's what they found out. Atta was a female, a girl they found most closely related to indigenous Chileans, but also had a substantial amount of European ancestry. 
So they determined that it was, in fact, human. They had no specific date other than they knew that that there was Chilean ancestry as well as European, so it would have been post-Columbian. It would have been like 1500s on, so relatively recent compared to what they were originally thinking, which was a couple of thousands of years ago. And since Chile was colonized in the 1500s, it kind of at least gave them a framework. But here's the thing. There is no genetic condition known to mankind that would explain the condition of these remains. They still have no official explanation as to what is going on here, Mm -hmm. other than it has DNA from people, indigenous people from Chile, as well as some European Mm -hmm. uh, DNA. So they're thinking that it could very well be a bizarre combination of genetic deformities they did uh, additional studies and out of like two million different types of possibilities they narrowed it down to 54 that could have caused some of these conditions so what they think their best guess is that this was a child that was born in this area post-columbian their best guess at this point is that it is a highly unlikely but possible combination up to seven very rare genetic deformities happening all at once that caused this child to be the way it was. Wow. In addition to that, they determined that it wasn't several thousand years old. Right. It wasn't even from the 1500s. It was about 40 years old. What? Yeah. Scientists are saying that this should you know, pretty much put this controversy to bed. Doctors who treat children with rare, rare genetic bone disorders also think the debate highlights how archaeologists and other scientists can be misled by genetic disorders that cause unusual physical features. Mm. Like, for example, uh, the controversy surrounding the hobbits, the small creatures that were discovered, what, maybe 15 years ago in Indonesia. Uh, scientists still debate over whether those little creatures were relatives of modern humans or simply humans that were unusually small in stature. Whole scoochers. All humans, Ada included, can have many different genetic mutations, but usually only one of these mutations actually causes a child's disease. It's virtually unheard of for seven mutations to be involved. Whoa. Now, since they have determined that this was actually a member of the indigenous culture and a fairly recent one, there are a number of people that are really up in arms about them taking the body from Chile and performing tests on it. In an article in a Chilean magazine, president of the uh, Chilean Society of Anthropological Biology accused Nolan's team of ignoring Chilean laws governing the handling of human remains and pandering to to uh, populism. He said, quote, presumably they were thinking of the colossal media response to the case, literally making an alien show out of this apparently tragic story. And I think, yeah, this is a great example of the amateur archaeologist giving you E. coli. In response to the Chilean criticisms, both the journal and the authors have uh, added formal statements to their uh, paper defending the policies for reviewing work involving human remains. 
Genome Research Editor Hilary Sussman said the journal maintains the highest standards of ethics and responsibility and responsible peer review. The atomic uh, skeleton, she added, technically fell outside the publication's own guidelines. Current human subjects research policies do not typically cover the study of specimens of uncertain biological origins, such as the Atacama skeleton, she wrote. However, they said they are reviewing their policies and they plan to adjust them accordingly. This had never happened before. Sure. They said that, you know, if they had known definitively that this was a relatively recent person. I mean, if you think about it, they say this person died about 40 years ago. They found her in 2003. So she'd only been dead for a couple of decades at that point. But the way that the desert dried her out, it just made it look like it it was far older than it was. And mom is probably still alive. Well, that's the thing. And I'm sorry, reading about how randos are dissecting her baby it's very possible they've not been able to locate uh, parents obviously and that would be a big help in determining what uh, the conditions were that uh, this child had and and perhaps genetically how that happened but until that happens or if that happens it probably never will we just don't know. But it's it's a fascinating story. It's not an alien, but it is something we have never seen before, mm-hmm. which is seven bizarre genetic deformities all happening at once and cutting short the life of, uh, of this child. I got my information from CNN, National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and the New York Times. Oh, my gosh. I forgot to say my sources. Uh, I got my information from, uh, of course... Oh, Wikipedia. Uh, Allthatisinteresting.com. A paper called The Blue People of Troublesome Creek, written by Kathy Trost. And that's it. I was just informed this morning that uh, there are about 20 VIP tickets left to the San Francisco show. Uh, there's a, a handful left in Boston, a few in, in Charlotte, and Nashville is uh, sold out. Well, the VIPs are still plenty of general admission. We hope to see you at one of those shows. Yes, please. For ticket information, go to theboxofoddities.com. Real quick, wanted to just uh, mention uh, a thank you to everyone who reached out, wishing us a happy anniversary. That was really sweet. And those who reach out like every day. And it's amazing because, you know, we've been real, real busy lately. And I've been feeling a little like... Uh, and we're, <laughs> you know, we're we're getting ready for this uh, mini tour, which is amazing, and I'm super excited about it. But it is, um, it's a little overwhelming sometimes. Thinking, okay, well, we've already sold out of VIP tickets in Nashville, and you know, this has to be good. Yeah. And so there's a lot of meh mm-hmm. going on in my chest, and sometimes it makes its way up to my esophagus. Anyway, in, um, in addition to that, we're also in the process of launching the premium channel. Don't forget that. That's right. And we just incorporated, and uh, that's exciting. And we've just, (sighs) there's been a lot. (laughs) But Um, we're grateful for it. Don't get us wrong. That's the thing, is that you 
you people, God, you make it so much easier. And hearing your stories and seeing your beautiful faces and uh, being able to interact with you and talk with you about the weird shit that interests us, it just really does make me feel like, um, you know, we are doing this together. Yeah. And I'm I'm so grateful for you and your help and your suggestions. And um, I just, anyway, I'm just feeling all kinds of big, big, big type love feelings, whatever. Lots of gratitude and appreciation and love. We, we really appreciate everything that you guys do for us. That being said, the Box of Oddities splatters on your phone a couple of times a week and we look forward to seeing you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2019 All rights reserved If you like this podcast can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts and its name tells part of the story the big picture questions, and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.